1: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you from Vox headquarters in New York City with one of my newish Vox Media colleagues, Mm -hmm. Jesse David Fox, who works over at New York Magazine and Vulture and I'm not quite sure how to describe you, but I think you have described yourself as a comedy journalist. <laughs>
3: yeah, I think that's what I say. Holy uh, shit, I did not realize that was a job. It is a very new job. I kind of want,
2: well, I definitely want that job. All right, well, you
3: will be then the third or fourth that have existed in the last 10 years or whatever. I feel like there wasn't, there would not been a full-time comedy journalist before 2010. Um, maybe, or whenever Jason started, so maybe 2009 or something uh, At the time. Jason so,
2: Zinneman, yeah. Yeah you have to be a specific person to have that job, right? A, a, not just a nerd, but a comedy nerd.
3: Well, it's it's a, it's it's a partly being a comedy nerd, which also I think is a term that only has existed for 10 years, right? Like growing up, I wasn't like, oh, I'm a comedy nerd because th- I, that didn't exist. I don't you think- You were just I, a nerd. I was just a nerd, I guess. I mean, I sort of <laughs> think about how like I was just, I was sort of nothing. I was like a nope, I just consumed content. Yeah. And I didn't think about like my place in the hierarchy I mean, like, I watched a lot of comedy, but I didn't know if that was more or less than anyone else. Um, Now, in retrospect, I did watch way more TV than I think probably people. And I was, like, constantly watching The Simpsons. And then, you know, my parents at a pretty young age were like, well, this is what we're watching. You can watch it. So I watched In Living Color at, like, four or five. And then, like, I remember watching Chris Rock's Bring the Pain special, which was, like, 95, 96. So I was watching that when I was, like, 10. And I don't know what I understood. I knew it was great. But
2: like there's a lot of those jokes that we're I way remember. Over we were walking around playing tapes of uh, Eddie Murphy's I guess delirious, whatever is the ice cream mm-hmm. bit when I was probably fifth or sixth grade and we definitely did not understand half of those jokes. Yeah,
3: but you understood the like the Family Reunion stuff, whichever that was whichever one that was in, you're like, I get that. Like he transcends a lot of stuff because he's ultimately just like he has such a childlike
2: energy, I guess, that you're like, yeah, yeah, that's what it's like. There's a lot. So now I'm watching my kids. They're starting to watch SNL, and they definitely only get half of it. I'm yeah. um, sitting with The Office, but they get big, broad stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm not doing a great parenting job, but I'm trying.
3: I mean, like, I
2: rewatch this. I still watch The
3: Simpsons now. Now that's on Disney+, Plus. I'm like, I guess I only need to watch The Simpsons. I don't need more TV shows. And I'm like— I can—there's jokes I laugh at now. I was like, well, I definitely didn't laugh at that when I was, like, six. But the—especially this especially animation is good at this, which is like, well, there's parts in it for everyone because, like, I just like cartoons. And, you know, Homer did
2: dumb stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bart was the first breakout, the, the don't-have-a-cow-man. Um— Jesse and I are going to spend the next hour talking about our childhood, (laughs) and so that's something you're going to want to hear. Um, But just to set the table for you, Jesse has a new season of his podcast called... Good one. A podcast about jokes. Which is is for comedy nerds and people who like them. He talks to all the world's greatest comedians about something they have done. It's a really deep dive. It's mm-hmm. really smart. You should listen to it. It, not coincidentally, is now a Vox Media Podcast Network podcast. So you, whenever you hear this, go check out Good One. Yes, please do that. Um, and we are going to talk about that show a little bit, but I do want to talk to you about comedy, comedy landscape, mm-hmm. how that's changed sure. over time. Um, how long have you been a comedy journalist for? I would say... Pff, I'm trying to think.
3: Nine years or so. I was... and. Not paid. I was an unpaid yeah. comedy journalist for a few years when I was just trying to be in anything, anything journalist. And comedy was a thing that I was sort of drawn to write about, but it wasn't my plan to be a person who wrote about comedy. But So I've been doing it probably
2: for about nine years. I think I started writing for Splitsider originally. So that's a pretty interesting time to have covered comedy for, right? Yeah. So that's 2009, 2010. If you listen to this show— You are aware of what was happening in technology and media then, which is uh, Twitter, Facebook. Facebook is already a big deal. Twitter is rising. The iPhone's introduced in 2007. 2010, it's mainstream. Mm -hmm. Blogs are still a big deal. Yes. Um, And now we've got a whole new other series of social media. So how has comedy changed in that time, and how much of that is due to changes in technology and distribution in the media landscape? Of course, yeah. I mean, uh the—
3: I wrote a piece if, probably about five years ago about what I call the second comedy boom, which is what we're currently in. Some people consider maybe the third comedy boom, depending on if you consider the sort of uh, comedy album boom of the sort of 50s as a boom. Anyway, the, and then the second comedy boom, or first, is the one that happened in the 80s. That's
2: the cable TV. Yeah, and that's, well, it's uh, well, stand-up clubs right, stand-up all up the and, and, and guys in the jackets with the sleeves yes, pushed up exactly. standing in front of a brick wall. Yeah, and then comedy –
3: took a huge nosedive and was as unpopular as it ever has been in sort of the 90s. And then around 2009, I would say the boom started. So, and to answer your sort of question specifically, which was podcast was a huge part of it. Um, Podcasts a lot of the podcasts we associated with that time started in 2009, so WTF was 2009. That's Mark Barron. Yeah, and then Comedy Bang Bang, Scott Ackerman's podcast was 2009, and Earwolf, which became sort of the, one of the more prominent comedy networks. I think Adam Carolla's podcast started in 2009. Yep. I don't know what Joe Rogan's did, but it's probably
2: around, around the same time. So, so some of these are people using um, technology and podcasts to tell jokes or host radio shows, yeah. and some of it is... Like a Mark Barron thing, it's it's a dissection of comedy and an assumption that there's an audience out there that either knows a lot about comedy or would like to know a lot yeah. about it and gets you to your podcast where people like really want to see the, un- yeah. the, the underpinnings of this
3: stuff. Yeah, I mean, I always, when I define this last boom, I, I talk about it in terms of audience and because, partly because I am an audience member, I'm not a comedian. And I think for a variety of reasons, the comedy boom correlated with a time in which people were ready to take comedy more seriously. I think, you know, I I point to one, it's a generation raised on Seinfeld. So they're a generation raised thinking that the daily life of a comedian is an interesting thing for zillions of people. Then I think Jon Stewart made everyone think, oh, comedy is important, and so we just sort of all cared enough. So I think as a result, you have sort of watching, you're getting WTF, which is sort of behind the scenes, and that's really interesting to people. Also, the idea that you're watching comedy being formed opposed to like just getting comedy when it's done and ready and it's like delivered to you yeah. on TV it's I want to go see people work on things it became a much more interactive relationship between audience and comedian um, around this time though it didn't become what really changed things was comedians were releasing their specials directly so that was like that was the thing Louis was doing he's like I'm going to do a special every year and I'm going to put it on my website um, directly for you pay what you want um, it only lasted a couple years, but I think the idea that a special is a thing that lives online, opposed to it's a place that you, I think you can only watch on HBO and Comedy Central, did pave the way for what then really kickstarted a lot of what happened with comedy, which was sort of Netflix really jumping in on, on stand-up as a way to sort of really just build out their content library. And that then brought certain comedians to a level that is sort of unbelievable. I mean. I think if I remember correctly, it was like three comedians before 2009 have ever played Madison Square Garden, and then now like 12 have in the last 10 years or something crazy like that. I mean, there's so many, even comedians that are definitely not household names, like Sebastian Maniscalco can sell out Madison Square Garden, Jim Gaffigan sells out Madison Square Garden, Bill Burr, who is like known a lot in comedy, but like ultimately he's not like a famous person. He can sell sell it out multiple times.
2: That is a huge difference. And you tie that to Netflix. That's Netflix putting these people on now 161 million screens, and some small slice of them didn't know who Bill Burr was. Now they do, and then that allows them to sell out a Madison Yeah, Square I Garden. mean,
3: I think for certain people, right? So uh, Bill was one of the earliest Netflix comedians, and if you look at a lot of the early Netflix comedians – a lot of them have bigger careers than I think people would like notice. There's other guys like like Mike Birbiglia does big theaters. Um, John Mulaney is a big example. Tom Segura.
2: Before, uh, before we tumble into this, sure. let's just let's just table set. So if, sure. if, you, if if you don't spend all your time thinking about comedy like Jesse does and I, <laughs> yeah. I also do, uh, a Netflix special is a comedian doing an hour. Yes, uh, and this is again traditionally what you used to watch on HBO. Very rare if you got an HBO hour, it was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, then Comedy Central put out more of them, half an hour, an hour, and it would still sort of it meant that you were a big deal in comedy because some a network had invested yeah. money in you and time in you.
3: And it would take a really long time even to get like a half hour. It, it would be assumed like oh after ten. Years, you get a half hour, which is truly
2: not the pace right. anymore. And, and sort of an old-timey comedy, you know, Chris Rock's HBO specials are, are famous things. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, you can sort of go down the list. Um, and then Netflix, a few years ago, as they're getting into the original content, decides, oh, this is something we could throw a ton of money at. It's cheap for yes. us.
3: Yeah, comparably.
2: And because it's a person standing Mm -hmm. in front of a stage, that's it. We'll shoot two episodes or two two things, done. There's a couple stories about them giving Dave Chappelle an enormous amount of money, but Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that most of the comedians, they're not throwing huge sums out. They're just doing a lot of it. And they're throwing more than had been previously thrown. Like, it's all
3: proportionate. But like Comedy Central was not paying particularly a lot um, for a first special from a comedian where Netflix sometimes would. I mean, and what's the, what's, what's a, uh, give me a, I feel like account? I remember hearing that like $20,000 someone might get for a Comedy Central special and now they're getting probably, I'd say maybe at least a 100, I have no idea. I mean, the other thing is the production value of them is way higher um, because I think for Netflix, I, you know, I wrote a piece after, Netflix announced they're gonna do a special every week and they, they're not doing any more, but there was a year where they're like, we're gonna do a special every week and I didn't particularly love that strategy but the thing that I wrote, is like the only thing that connects all Netflix specials together is, you know, it's not style. It's it's just that they look more expensive, which is a lot about what the Netflix model is, which is like, this is a product worth paying for. Look how much money we're putting into these things. And also, here's a lot of stuff.
2: Here's and a lot of stuff. Maybe you've heard of this person. Maybe you haven't. We have a lot of it. Yeah. So if you like one of them, we're going to serve you a lot more. Yeah.
3: And they have algorithms that, I mean, this, this might be too far into the weeds, but of Not for this show. How far people listen to – how much – how far people watch. There's, you know, comedians talk about that. They'll say like, oh, people are only watching 30 minutes of an hour. So put your best stuff in the middle. Some, they're like, that's why they tried a bunch of 15-minute specials because they're – you know, there are comedy fans. But what they realized is after you watch like a big serious drama, you want something quick to watch that is funny. And – if you're not a if you're not usually watching stand up it's just sort of whatever netflix will tell you and then you don't need an hour which is sad and i think they give people an hour because comedians are working on hours at a time you, you know to explain how the sort of economy of standup works, which is essentially like you start out and you might get five minutes to a late night set. Then you're doing maybe 20 minutes. So you, in a comedy club lineup, you go what is a middle act, which is you go second. And then you're a headliner, which you're supposed to do 45 minutes to an hour. So like an hour is the unit in which a comedian at that level is working at. So they give comedians an hour because that's, what's that's what they have.
2: They're like but Musicians but, used to do LPs in theory because vinyl could only have so much capacity. But at some point, 45 minutes is just what you do if you yeah, make an album.
3: Yeah. So they're giving these comedians an hour knowing that most people are just watching 30 minutes of it. And they're giving comedians now, people who have hours, 30 minutes. Nikki Glaser did an hour and a 30 minutes last year. And... It's great. I mean, I imagine more people watch. The, it's possible more people watch the 30 minutes or they watch 30 minutes of both. And it's a huge change. I mean, there's lots of reasons why comedy is more popular. It's it's for specific examples. There's direct line. I think the most extreme example is always Ali Wong, who, like, couldn't really sell out a club before her special came out. Her special came out. I think she sold out it's like eight Beacon Theater shows this year or something insane like and now makes movies for Netflix yeah Yeah, I mean that when it works for people it really really works but there's other things again podcasts but I also think there's just sort of a general interest right now in comedy and a quality of comedy that I think is unprecedented I think there's more talented comedians now than there ever has been
2: so I figured we were going to get to Netflix I didn't know we were going to do it right away (laughs) but pretty much every one of these shows now is now uh, every one of these conversations I have now is now a Netflix conversation I'm also making a a multi-part series about Netflix. So you'll be able to hear that at some point this summer. Um, Take a quick break so you can hear from one of our favorite sponsors, be right back.
0: Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO, Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor? What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Still back here, Jesse David Fox, comedian, comedy journalist, Mm -hmm. not a comedian. Did you ever ever try? Yeah, I did
3: stand up once. Not um, for real any other reason other than I... I have a friend, I would send her jokes, and she's like, we can just do it one time. And there's two things that will either happen. There's comedians who don't like the idea that there's critics and be like, you just wish you were a comedian, mm-hmm. which is crazy. The idea that a, a writer who, like, dreams of, like, never having to leave their house and, like, can work in their pajamas would want to have to be touring There's constantly. a
2: little bit of that, though, right? Like, if I mean, there's an, a reasonable assumption if you are an athlete that big yeah. sports writer— had one day aspired to be a quarterback. That makes more right? sense
3: because it's like the unachievable goal. But I think and the in life tech, of there's a little like if you you oh, really
2: wish that you could run a startup like yeah. me, etc.
3: I but I and I I know that Wall Street there was that that criticism always exists. I think just in for the life of a comedian it is so drastically different and worse. Yeah, like I think a club comedian's life, unless you love doing it. It's just not worth it. And I think comedy is way too hard and you can only really do it if you have a part of you that is addicted to it. And so I didn't do it because I felt like I needed to prove that I can do it or something. I sort of did it because I thought it would be fun. How did it go? uh, I went okay. But the main thing is I had one joke that I remember it went pretty well. And I remember thinking, oh, thank God I didn't love that. Didn't love the reaction because – then you chase that. That's, like, what starts comedians off. Like, they all had the first set. They remember it. They always go, like, oh, it went great, and then I bombed for, like, 20 years or whatever. But it's because that first one, there's so much adrenaline. Get that first high. And it, it is that. You you chase that, and that what motivates you for years. And I didn't have that feeling, thank God, so I don't have to chase it, and I can, like, go back to my life. But what I tell comedians is, like, my job as a comedy journalist is – to help translate what comedians do to the audience. So if anything, I have to be more in touch with the audience than I have to do with comedians because I have a sense of what they're doing, but the audience has less of a sense and I have to understand what they're doing. I remember I had a math teacher who said the best math teachers are not the greatest mathematicians in the world because the greatest mathematicians in the world can't understand not understanding math. And it's a little bit like that. That's why Michael Jordan would be a terrible coach. Exactly. So it's it's like, yeah, just do all the... It's like, so for me... I can't – I don't want to be too empathetic of just how it is to be a comedian. I am empathetic to the creative process, and I think about it in those terms. And I've – you know, I've write things before as a, exclusively a comedy journalist. I was essentially a blogger, which is a comedy writing yeah. job. And I took great pride in it. I love blogging. I, it's a lost art. I really believe in it. But – so I understand the idea of crafting a joke, and I understand the idea of craft. But my, my job is to help comedians – Help comedians explain what they're trying to, to do to laymen who don't totally understand it, who who unlike other art forms have not had a history of explaining the the yeah. art of stand-up or the art
2: of any comedy. And, and to be clear, when you're talking about our audience, right, this is – and we're going to talk more about tech and distribution yeah. – You can sit in your house and get all kinds of stuff streamed at you, but you you are still interested in the idea that these are live performances happening in front of audiences most often, yeah, and and that there is still a very large audience, like you were talking about, going to Madison Square Garden, going to comedy clubs, wanting to see this stuff in, in 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 real life.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's both, but I do think the live audience is the comedy industry when the live audience. Like, when you say a boom, really, you're talking about the people going at the clubs. Spending money. Because that's where the comedians make money. Like, really? And that is happening now. It's not just Madison Square Garden. If you look at clubs, they're all doing really well across the country. And there's a lot of touring comedians who can tour. And that it's it's having a comedy middle class. So, But for me, the thing about comedy, which is different, let's say, from music, which is people don't really go...
2: Twice we, a year was the statistic. You go to a concert twice yeah. a year.
3: Yeah, but you also are like... You're not going, like, I'm going to go see music tonight. Whatever music's at the music club, mm-hmm. I will just consume.
2: I only like jazz. I hope it's jazz. Oh, no, it's metal. Like, that is not— also why there aren't, like, music publications. Because yeah, exactly. yeah. you don't care about music. You care about your band or yeah. that genre.
3: So, we're comedy. People go to the comedy club. And so, one, my goal has always been, like, how can we explain— how can help instruct an audience to understand that every comedian is different? And that we're trying to essentially create intra diversity of the idea of these are that there's no such thing as one comedian who does one thing and have them be more informed. Because for me, a better audience means better comedy and, and meaning a, a comedian writes a joke by having an idea and maybe they write something down, but they talk about it on stage. And based on how people laugh, they know what is good or what's bad. And – Broadly defined, every comedian works vaguely in that path, and if your audience is not that savvy, then your your joke is going to be worse. A more savvy audience is more demanding. It's more demanding of like what's interesting, what's more aware of what's a more interesting comedy move, more patient for longer bits. You know
2: that he, seems like a pretty specific kind of comedy audience, I right? Mean, like well, whatever the equivalent of Dane Cook is today. Yeah right like maybe that that audience is sampling a lot of comedy and is really knowledgeable but they're probably responding to stuff that isn't that sophisticated they're totally happy it's a yeah. fine it's a fine transaction right their time and money whoever the dane cook of today is is performing something for them and they're never going to think about it again and they're not comparing it to pat Oswalt's thing they saw last it, week
3: it's i think they are the the dane cook audience of today i mean dane cook is still around but like who's who's, they, who's our
2: dane cook today it's hard to know because i think there's, There's a giant, giant, hugely popular person that other comedians don't take that seriously because yeah. he or she is not that sophisticated or is doing dumb jokes.
3: Um, partly, n- and I'll explain why there isn't that I can think of, because I can think of people that are not to the taste of, like, the nerdiest nerds but are not condescended upon as the way that Dane is. Like let's say like a guy like Chris D'Elia or whatever or or Eliza Schlesinger. But I do not think the sort of like comedy nerd audience is really – cannot talk down to them the same way because I do think they are operating at a higher level. And I do think their audience is more demanding than the audience com- Dane Cook was performing to. I also think Dane – I you know, I could defend Dane Cook. I think a lot of his stuff. Don't, I an, don't
2: care about it one way or another. Just was, it, was a, it was an idea that he was a guy making jokes for – Dumb college kids, and it was yeah. wasn't even really comedy. It was kind of performance, yeah. and and if you were a working comedian or a snotty alt comedian, you that was yeah. Easy. And I
3: think it's the truth is, as all comedians get bigger, they realize what like a, every comedian becomes a little bit more of a persona comedian yeah. than just a strict joke writer because you have fans and they want to see you just be yourself. I think. All audiences, not just this sort of idea of a comedy nerd audience, is more savvy because of these podcasts, because you're you understand these things are crafts. I mean, there are clearly people that don't know anything and they don't know anything, but they are being exposed to comedians that are most likely working when they're not touring in New York, LA to people in New York and LA that are more savvy. And that is already the starting off point that they that at some point they're being held to a higher regard their peers are being high to held to a higher regard and that is raising all ships or whatever the the quote is i mean so yeah you can still be hack and really popular i mean i've gone to the you know i don't go to the comedy seller that often but you'll go and there might be eight comedians and you know two would be great comedians you never heard of two would be older comedians that are may or may not be your taste and you know, some and maybe a famous drop-in, but you also will see, like, a person to my taste is, like, a hack. Just because they're doing an older style of comedy, but that person is still doing well. Like, the, the point is, yes, they still exist. They're, like, hackier things exist, but I do think the level of quality and the level of audience is raising at different levels. Like, I think there is a really... Savvy audience that is demanding a lot from comedians, and those comedians
2: are meeting that expectation. So, I asked you what changed, and, and we ended up at Netflix. Sure. And to me, that's the most like Netflix pushing comedy mm-hmm. is a very Netflixy move, which is here's a thing, it exists, it's a form we can do that thing, Yes, we just need to spend money to do it, and then we could spend a lot of money, make a lot of it, and we can distribute it to your home. They can do it with anything, right? They could have done it with soap operas, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, and also the form doesn't really change, right, yeah. it's the same stand-up that people were doing half an hour. I, I am curious what you think about tech like YouTube mm-hmm. and Twitter and sort of how some of those individual things have, have shaped comedy sure. or not shaped comedy. To me, Twitter seems pretty obvious. It's where a lot of people are writing jokes, either because they're professional comedians or they aspire to be professional comedians, and then, you know, amateurs can try their hand at it. Um, Am I missing something there? No. I think Twitter—I mean, now it's a
3: little bit different. But if we go back to 2009, it was comedians wrote jokes and really had an opportunity to connect to people directly, which, uh, again, is a lot of— Do a one-liner. Do a one-liner. And also, like— There's – first, you have the one-liner comedians who can do that and then build an audience from that. And Rob Delaney is probably the biggest example of a comedian who wasn't really established at all and then became the sort of Twitter giant. And so that's a direct audience. But you also have sort of people who are medium-level comedians who are doing jokes. But also, I remember Aziz would ask people where they should eat in different towns, right? where it's like, oh, I'm going to be in Indianapolis. What should I eat? And then people respond. And there was a connection to the sort of everyday life of a comedian that I also think was also popular, right? So it's not that everyone had a podcast. It's that that same mentality of a podcast was extended through social media and I think totally worked. Once the that last the last election, I think that sort of changed and that's not really a space for how comedians break in the same what, way. What was... Because the conversation changed. I mean, like the... People the, don't want to... Read non political jokes on Twitter? You can still do some. They don't pop off in the same way. And you can't just be only that really. I mean, there's still some, but also once you have like 30 people who have done it, there's just, it's harder for a person to break through, but people still do it. I mean, like, uh, Jabuki Young White is relatively young. I mean, he's probably in middle school when a lot of this stuff was happening, you know, and he is of that world. So he can speak the vocabulary in a way that I think. The that is harder for older comedians to sort of get into and he, he came up through Twitter and he became huge through Twitter and then also was doing stand-up and moved to the city and now he's on The Daily Show so it still happens it's just way more rare and I think generally people don't like going on to it in the same way like
2: literally just don't like it like sure, they might sure. do it they literally just like it's not fun no I mean that's most people's approach to Twitter right you get into it and then it's somewhere you go oh I don't feel yeah. good and then YouTube was to get to your
3: earlier question YouTube was huge when it was huge I mean like I can't remember exactly, but the—I mean, you look at, like, well, he, the lonely YouTube
2: is, is bigger than it's yeah, ever been. Yeah, but it was huge
3: for comedy in a way that you didn't really it, break through. Yeah, so in what way— in So, what, like, the Lonely Island, we- Lazy Sunday, if I remember correctly, the week that YouTube um, went fully live, not just beta, was the week Lazy Sunday came out.
2: So that's and, the famous SNL clip yeah, with Andy Samberg.
3: And that became really viral in a way that SNL— didn't ex- never experience, right? They had like sketches
2: like uh, Cowbell, the Blue Oyster sc- Cult sketch where Will Ferrell's yep. uh, banging the cowbell. Or the cheerleaders and you would talk about, and also they would do a sketch that was popular and they would do it 12 yeah. more times. and that was sort of the previous version of Viral, but then Lazy Sunday came out and you're like, oh, this is what
3: the modern day version will be like. And they're able to keep on replicating it. And you could enjoy it without ever watching SNL. Yeah. and now you're seeing SNL's putting up sketches during the show. It's wild. Like literally if you watch SNL at 11.50, the cold opens up.
2: It's really interesting. Yeah, and you can watch the entirety of SNL basically on YouTube, cut yes. up into clips, basically on Twitter the next day officially through SNL. They aren't pretending that there's a different – they aren't pretending that people who are watching online would normally watch on TV. And so if you held it back off yeah. online, they would be forced to watch it on TV. They realize that audience is only online.
3: Yeah, and their ratings are fine enough. Like they're able to do both. And you also had comedians that came up through YouTube that made it. I mean, Bo Burnham is probably the most extreme example. He was a he was 16. He did some dumb song. It became huge. We had him on the show a while ago. He's great. And then he grew as the internet did. And he's not really of that YouTube world anymore. And now he's, you know, a critically acclaimed director. But he was able to do that. But he'll say, he'll be the first one to admit, like, he, he that can't happen again. Like, there aren't— Because it's harder to break through on YouTube. It's so much harder. And the algorithms don't encourage it in the same way. And there's so much. And everyone's trying. And he he was like—I remember people like, you look at billboards when YouTube was doing billboards of, like, the stars. And he was like, you look at those billboards and they're no different than the stars on TV shows. Like, what was the point of all of this if it's just, like, a different way for beautiful people to just prove that they could be famous?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's—, it's contains multitudes, right? It's two billion people. Like, my kids think a YouTuber is a guy who has an Australian accent and and plays video games and Mm -hmm. talks, right? They don't realize there's other versions of YouTube. Yeah, of course. Um, I do remember there was a lot of sort of discussion of, well, so-and-so is popular on the internet or popular on YouTube, but they're not a comedian, they're not even performing in Mm -hmm. clubs, they're performing in a basement, and so that that can't be comedy, since they haven't really done this in front of a live audience. Do you think that was a a legitimate critique? I'm thinking,
3: uh, no, in so much as I know what that critique is, but the spirit of that critique has existed forever as a way of narrowing the definition of what a comedian is, and I hate
2: that spirit. And that's keeping the club yeah, short, it's, small.
3: it's keeping the club small, literally. Like, we're talking about comedy clubs. There are people that are like, well, if, if they're pr- uh, performing in Brooklyn at a bar, that's not real comedy. Real comedy is if they're drunk and they're throwing bottles at you. Like, there is a portion of comedy that is conservative in so much as they do not want comedy to be defined outside of who they are and they do not want to progress
2: which it's, is pretty standard most yeah. people who are in a club don't want the club to change
3: yeah so that is where that spirit is in and i understand that spirit because those people then would do shows and sell out clubs and not be prepared where a comedian who does feel like they put on the work we're like why can't i do that and i understand that um A comedian, Moshe Kasher, and I talked about there's, um, he feels that a lot of comedians lash out because they're so insecure about if what they do is an art form at all. So as a result, they just really hammer in what they believe is their value system. So when new things come about, instead of embracing it, they push back against it. However, if you do see the comedians who do embrace it and have put in the work, the benefits are tremendous. I mean, like, you know, Mark Maron, as an example of a person who, like, had been doing comedy for 25 years or whatever before the podcast, once he started building an audience, he was ready to, like, now he plays, you know, thousands of seed venues because he had the skill set where some of these YouTube people might not be able to adjust quickly, and it's hard to start comedy when you already have an audience.
2: I'm curious why um, I don't spend that much time on Instagram, but I don't get the sense that that's, like, a a, a comedy place. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know like David Spade or whomever will do bits, but I don't hear of people sort of breaking through there or go follow so and so. They're doing really funny stuff on Instagram. (laughs) It seems like it should be perfect for that.
3: Yeah, there's a little, you see a couple things. You'll see like people are taking their jokes and they'll like clip, do a little clip. I think like Andrew Schultz is probably the most extreme example of that, but he also is like a YouTube guy. You see like these, there's a trend of like front facing video sketches. But I imagine the Instagram algorithm doesn't share in the same way. I mean, the thing that's closest is, like, meme accounts, from what I understand. Which I want like, to
2: talk to you about memes, yeah.
3: Which is, to me, is, like, outside of my realm of, like, what I think comedy is. Like, I do not think that is a performed thing. And I also think— So
2: comedy has to be uh, a performance by a person who's trying to reach other people.
3: I don't—I'm trying to think. Like, do I think of humor writing as comedy? I don't know. Like, let's—because that's not performed right. But I think— Meme aggregation is a little bit beyond
2: my ability to grasp how it's the same thing. Well, uh, forget the aggregation, just the, the idea. So my kids again are now saying all kinds of stuff that has no context. Yeah, they think it's hilarious. I've finally learned after you know, six months of, that if I ask them what he's saying, like what yeah. what is it? Like, that, that's a meme. Yeah, and I'll say right, but what does that mean? Like it's a meme. Like it's completely contextless. Mm-hmm. They don't think they're being transgressive. They, it's just a funny yeah. thing, um, and to me, that's quite stupid. And it's it's snotty and it's not comedy. But it it's a thing they think is funny. Isn't that comedy? Yeah, I, 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 it's there's a difference between comedy
3: and capital C comedy, and I think because memes, a lot of the joke is separate from the creation of it. So. Through my vocabulary, how I understand why memes are funny is there's dumb stuff in, let's say, capital C comedy. A dumb thing is partly funny because a grown-up decided to do something stupid. And there's that contrast, right? That, like, a person in a... You know, the example I always use is there's this group, Stella, which um, David Wayne, Michael Michael Ian Black, and Michael Sherr-Walter. and they wore suits and did the stupidest thing in the world. It's, like, the clearest example of, like, what i think of is like silly comedy and banana peel stuff yeah and memes have that same contrast in a different way which is like here's a stupid thing but the contrast becomes because thousands and millions of people have decided to share it and that is that is interesting and follows the rules of what comedy is however authorship i guess is intrinsic to my understanding of comedy like i can imagine interviewing a person who I believe authored comedy, but I don't think meme aggregation works in the same way of what I think of as the art form of comedy, which is what I'm more interested in than the sort of existing of comedy in our life. You know, like, you know, if you make a funny face at a baby and the baby laughs, you are creating comedy, and I think that is valuable to society. But my career has focused more on establishing the idea that there is such a thing as capital C comedy, that it is an art form, which is still a debated topic, among comedians who are like, you know, we're just making people laugh. It's not, you know, it shouldn't be taken seriously. And my whole thing is like we must. Like if we want this comedy boom to just keep on going and not be a boom, instead be, you know, a thing that is on the same level as these other art forms. You know, at Vulture, you look at the, the top of our site where it lists all the things we cover. And comedies, they are separate, right? It's like movies, TV, music, comedy. That is not a thing that existed in art sections in the past. And for it to stay there, we have to take comedy as seriously. And as the fact take, that the New York Times has a comedy yeah. journalist full time, is that, to go, go write just like about Dave Chappelle. Yeah, and especially in America, that is super recent and super different. You know, there in, in Australia and in in the UK, there are comedy critics because comedy was more of an extension of theater. But we have to create a vocabulary of like what is good, or you know, create value systems and be able to debate that, and that
2: demands taking comedy seriously as as a a capital C comedy. As a comedy journalist, do you think you laugh more often now because you're exposed to more comedy or you think you see so much you're like, I've seen that 20 times.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, I laugh more. I mean, I, I laugh more. I have no sense. I mean, like, I've only lived this life, so I have no idea how much I was laughing before. But I still laugh at comedy. I mean, I am a pretty easy laugh. I think that is... I'm thankful of it. I, I'm not cynical at all. I think if I see bad stuff, I don't laugh and I feel bad because I'm like, oh, I know why this isn't good and the people around me don't. And But I know – I because I have the ability to know what I know won't be a good situation, I don't put myself in that too often. And I can appreciate it, right? I can appreciate a comedian doing something that's not my taste. I've sort of divorced myself with my taste in a lot of ways in terms of my job as a journalist. I'm like, I can see something good even if I don't laugh at it, which is already a big difference. But when I see things that I like, I like it as much as I ever liked it. I'm crying laughing. I, literally within the last month, I can I have had examples where Ooh, I was, Who made you cry laughing? There was, um, there's this show, Detroiters, uh-huh. that was canceled, but there's an episode—I thought I've watched every episode. It's my favorite show, probably the this last— Tim Robinson, years. who you may have heard
2: of, because I think you can leave. Yeah, or, I think you should leave. I think you should leave. Netflix. And
3: um, Sam Richardson, who was on Veep, yeah. and they had an episode that I, for some reason, had not seen. I was talking to another person who was a fan who was like, maybe they didn't air it, because I didn't see it, and I don't know why. And there was a joke in it— um, I hey, will set it up we'll see if it works, which was they both play a stupid idiot guys, which to give some context. And they go to a funeral and Tim goes up to the the widower and he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry if you ever need any help. I'm happy to come by the house. And he goes, sh- the guy goes, sure, come by Saturday, which was already not the expectation. so the 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 man was showing Tim around the house and he asked him to make him sandwiches. And she's like, well, like Lucy, whatever her name was like, Lucy always makes me sandwiches. Now she sandwiches for worms. And I was just like, <laughs> it was so funny. And I had, I was having a bad day and it completely changed my entire body chemistry. And I bastardized it. But it, it's yeah. still like, it happens all the time. I'm watching the comedians I'm preparing to interview, and I'm, I'll laugh at the joke and be like, well, what I... And it's, I'm thankful that these comedians are doing such the work. Yeah. Like, when I started the podcast, it was a bit of a gamble because one comedians never like talking about how they write jokes but also they they don't not in a public way I say the origin story of the podcast was I was interviewing Jerry Seinfeld and I was asking about how he writes jokes this was um, at Vulture Festival and I eventually did release this interview. Like I it?
2: saw, I, I, one of my favorite things I've ever seen is there's a whole documentary dedicated to Jerry Seinfeld trying to build an yeah. hour and and oh, talking Canadian. and t- yes, and it's 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 great because there's the it's Jerry Seinfeld, you know, getting in private jets and trying to work out a new hour right after
3: Seinfeld ended. Yeah,
2: and and so you're mostly watching him, but for whatever reason, they also have a, as a counterpart. Uh, a terribly unfunny comedian. His name is Orny Adams. Who's, still who also torn, yeah. seems to be a terrible person. Yeah. And it's definitely one of those, there's a joke on him that he does not yeah, seem bit. to be aware of and I, I just love it. Anyway, the point is it with Seinfeld talking about the, well, the showing. craft of... He's showing
3: it and he's, he's willing to do a little bit. Yeah. But he's not really totally comfortable talking about it and... Like he'll show it and he'll talk to comedians about it. But so I have to ask him about him in this public forum, you know, especially, and he goes, this is my favorite thing to talk about in the world, but it's boring to these people. And I didn't yell at him. I was like, this is your favorite thing in the world and you think these people who love you don't want to hear you talk about it? And then it's like, well, my job is to create a context where it's safe to talk about it. I, I tell almost every guest, the things that you don't talk about because you think are too boring, this is a space where those people are looking for that. That detail that is too boring is the
2: detail that they've not heard you say before. Yeah. By the way, I think that kind of applies to just about everyone. I don't know that you want to hear a podcast about a busboy, yeah. but if you get a busboy to explain like how he does his or her, probably his, job, mm-hmm. it's pretty—it's going to be pretty interesting. And no one ever asked those people about their job, and I've, as a journalist— it's oftentimes much better to find someone who hasn't been in a place where they're getting asked questions all yeah. the time because they – no one ever asked them any questions. Um, so you, you do – this is an hour, sometimes two hours of you talking to a comedian yeah. about the creation and execution of this thing. I was just listening to Pat Oswalt talk with you. It was very affecting. Uh, I'm talking about how he did this joke after his wife died. I'm wondering if, they're, if you find comedians who just don't have much to say, either because mm-hmm. they're reticent or maybe they just don't think about it that much and they're just kind of the equivalent of a someone who can dunk and hasn't really ever thought about how they do that.
3: Yeah, so both happen. So older comedians sometimes don't believe that anyone would want to hear them talk about it. And I try to use my own enthusiasm to prove that one person cares a lot. And then they kind of want to appeal to me. So I, th- you know, like... I use the example of Ray Romano before the interview started. He was like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I, and I was like, I promise you there's going to be not enough time. And if you listen to that interview, over the course of the interview, you can hear him
2: really get him. He's like, oh, I get it. And what's nice is like— and You're very serious. You're not trying to tell jokes. You no. are—and You are, you are and you're very earnest. Yes. And I don't mean that in a derogatory someone way. Someone called me ex- uh, unbelievably sentimental.
3: And I was like, oh, I guess so. Like you can't even believe that someone—I really, you know— I will cry when people really tell the truth of like what's a thing is special. And I think the jokes these people pick, I I find often very special, but I'm there and I'm really really like, I take it seriously as a way for them to take it seriously. And so that will help. There's certain people who I can see they're being insecure. So what I will do is tell them why they're great. In a way, I don't do it often because I want, the person to tell them for themselves. But I'm I'm like, this is a thing that you did that had not been done before. Or you broke into the scene in this way. I remember, also it's like weird to super brag. I remember uh, I had Cameron Esposito on in one of my favorite episodes. And I was thinking about how a lot of people can advocate for change, but it's hard to make change, especially the job of comedian is often just um, giving people the vocabulary to have change happen. And I, I basically told Cameron, I was like, one could argue that you literally took the existing comedy scene in Chicago and actively created spaces to change it. And there are comedians that have come up through what You've done. You created spaces that you taught a class only for women and queer people. You created a show that was primarily safe for those people. That is actively creating change. Would you agree that that is a thing that one might argue that you did? And and then I kept on kind of saying other. And then she decided to agree to it, even though she was just uncomfortable with the idea of like taking credit for something. And 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 I wasn't saying you were the only person who did anything, but. That will be the other thing that that I'll do in terms of reticent. The third thing which you said, which is people who aren't incapable of talking about it, which happens I'd say probably one out of fifteen times or twenty. Does that track with the kind of comedy they do or just necessarily? Right. There's people that do quote unquote dumb stuff that can talk forever about it, right? Like you might think like what the Lonely Island does is like and what they're doing is silly or stupid or whatever, but they are, you know, Andy, especially, is really articulate about why he does it and what they're trying to say. But there are other people who it is instinctual and their process is no process, right? They like, oh, I don't write anything. I just go up and then I remember it. And then my job is, one, by the time I'm going into the interview with them, I know this about them. You know, like I know they're either not comfortable talking about it or I know they just do it. Like for whatever reason, that's inside of them and they can just do it. So my job is then – to show that that's what they are, right? I'm not trying to take an instinctual person and pretend they're a craftsman. It's about showing, hey, there are these instinctual people that just for some reason, their brain show that. My favorite example is Christian Schall. It's a very early episode. It was one of the first episodes I recorded. And, you know, You'll ask some comedians of how they think of a joke and it's like, well, I was thinking about inequality and I was like, what's a good example of inequality or whatever? And then where Christian Shaw is like, how did this joke start? She goes, I had a dream of an empty birdcage. So I bought a birdcage and then I figured out what, 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 what I created a scenario of why there'd be an empty birdcage on stage. And that was it. That was her process. She had a dream about an empty birdcage. And that is comedy as much as the person who crafted it and that's the goal, right? Is to show that there's these people that have dreams of their bits, and there's a person who thought for 10 years about this topic and figured out a way to condense it into one sentence. And it's, you, you know, I take all comers. I mean, the trick is just sort of kind of know ahead of time the type of person they are. And I prepare um, way too much. You know, um, every time I have a new producer, they're like, you don't have to prepare this much. It's like, well, it's kind of too
2: late. <laughs> you hear that, Jelani? Okay, Jelani nods. Yeah. Um, Jelani's... We're now sharing Jelani's services. Mm -hmm. He's great. We'll do kind of a speed round. Uh, I'm sure you've been talking about this a lot. Post-Weinstein, post-Louis C.K. sort of being pushed out. Mm -hmm. um, A whole series of debates about what kind of things are and aren't you allowed to say and who gets to say them and people scouring old tweets and Mm -hmm. videos and there was an SNL cast member who never got to be an SNL cast member because his podcast was surfaced. Do you think there's any sort of coalescing around like, all right, here are the new rules, or do you think it's still wide open and people legitimately don't understand what kind of joke they can make and where they can make it? Yeah, all right. Speed round, the most yeah.
3: complicated question. Um, Let's go another hour. I, yeah, I, when I think about it, I, I tried, the, I think for me, the key is to separate out as much as possible and look at things separately. So, because there are multiple things are happening at once, and I think the sort of general idea of political correctness on stage is really complicated because I think comedians are, have a hard time understanding what the critics are saying about it and critics sort of don't understand what comedians are And trying. there's
2: critics and there's also Sorry. people on Twitter, I meant right? lowercase critics, okay. like the, the critiques. Like not, people getting yelled at on Twitter. Yeah. And I
3: think it's partly—the th- the truth is this happens in comedy over and over and over again. The idea of— There's this line, and people are mad that this line exists, has been happening for, I guess,
2: maybe 110 years or so. I mean, like— There's two things, though, right? There's things you can say or do on stage, and then also things you do off stage. Yeah, so uh, the the off stage—we'll
3: get to a second. So, like, the on stage part of it, and I think it's different. I've been thinking about it a lot because I think about the political correctness— conversation a lot in terms of comedy but there's also a political correctness conversation that happens like college campuses mm-hmm. and I have no opinion about that because ultimately comedy is an art form so it's a much more it's a different conversation I think to me a much more interesting conversation because comedy at its best is paradoxical art at its best is paradoxical and the truth is like comedians can say whatever they want people can respond to every, what however we want but I think the best way of thinking of it is um, Anthony Jessenhock will be like comedy without Political correctness is like football without the football. Your job is to have a line. If there isn't a line— What are you pushing then against? Then you're not pushing it. There's literally no tension. You're just talking about it. And there are comedians who I think are of the worst comedians out there who just want to say terrible things to people who want it. And if that's happening, you're not do, You're not an artist to me. You're like—you're just—you just want fans and you're, you're just playing. can That's caring.
2: Andrew Dice Clay 20, 30 years ago. Yeah,
3: when— When the idea of Andrew Dice Clay completely vanished and he was just saying hate speech to an audience who's open to that. And that is – that's antithetical. You want political credits to exist and also comedy changes. That's what happens, right? If you're saying the same thing – and I think that's a defense of comedians and um, a defense of the critics, right? I think – Uh, You know, Kevin Hart would have been like, I don't make those jokes anymore. The irony of the sort of Kevin Hart example. Kevin Hart
2: was going to be the the host
3: of the Oscars. His old tweets came up. And then he quit, which is important to remember because people act like he was fired. He was not fired. He quit. They kept on asking him to come back and he wouldn't do it. But the irony that Kevin Hart— And he becomes, gave one of
2: those non-apology apologies. Yeah,
3: because he's, he's an interesting guy. But the the irony is Kevin Hart is the most pro-PC comedian out there. If you listen to interviews, he goes, look, your job is to appease the audience. Why would you want to offend them? Like, he'll say stuff like that, which is ironic that people drag him in. But the thing is, he's like, I've changed. And that's important to show, I think, what's interesting about comedy is it can show where society was at at a time, and then when you look back at it, it won't age well. Comedy shouldn't age well if it's actually being present. So that's sort of the art form on it. I think it's like there's 9,000
2: lines, and you just sort of will cross them, and you decide which one you want to cross and how you want to do it. Do you feel that most comedians feel they have... The ability to push those lines because one of the tropes you hear is we can't do that anymore. We're going to get yelled at. We're going to get canceled. So get, so get yelled at. I mean, but, like, I mean but, but do you think that most of them actually are comfortable with it and they understand? Look, I'm going to say it. I may get yelled at. I, we all sort of know what we're doing. Or do they? You know, they, they. I tend to hear it mostly from the most successful, yeah. the Jerry Seinfelds. I won't go on a college campus, which or is whatever. a bit of a misnomer
3: because sure. he said that as a. I. I, I the Jerry I, Seinfeld I, part, I always like. He wouldn't play college campuses because his ass—college campuses don't have
2: enough money to pay Jerry Seinfeld. But I know— it, But I've it, seen him yeah. do riffs on that. Like, yeah. you young people can't get take a joke. Yeah. But I'm assuming that most people are actually pretty much okay yeah. with
3: it. Yeah, Bill Burr always like, I think it's overrated. Audiences are way more savvy than we give him credit for. And, you know, like Dave Chappelle will complain about it, but he's also aware that, like, he's— Getting paid $20 million to say that people have canceled him or whatever. It's like, well, clearly not. But I think he's aware of that irony. I think he's trying to explore it. I don't know how much they totally get it, but I think they understand that the the better comedians understand that they are free to say something and people are free to complain. They will find the complaints annoying, but they're aware that it's not really having an effect on them. And I think Bill Burr is probably the best example of like, he says a lot of stuff and he personally – understands that people might complain, but they're not really representative. There are his fans who maybe do not understand it, but that's because they are not the artists. They are part of this other conversation about political correctness that has been bastardized by a, to me, bad actors or people who are incentivized to push that agenda, which tend to be like conservative, um, like – like podcasters and YouTubers or whatever who are like political,
2: you know, the, the president of the United concern States concerned trolling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 not on the level. And then so the uh, and then the people part of it. Yeah, but like can, can can Louis C.K. be in a comedy club and why does he have to go perform in sort of the, the and and there was this thing with the comedy seller and you yeah. have a certain kind of joke there. It's, you know, it's super hard. I mean, Louis is the example
3: that is sort of you know, can he come back? I mean, like my my first thing is like we spend all of our empathy. On Louis C.K. and none of it on the people that have no careers because—and that is when it, where I tend to want to focus the conversation. But look, Louis is touring. He's playing the size of venues that a comedian who's starting building material is going to play. I have no idea where this gets to. I think most comedians— there's some comedians who don't want him around anymore or would like him to be away longer. I'm not here to say which is correct or not correct. I think most comedians would like him to address it and th- seem apologetic, right? There there's a lot of defense defenses of Louis. They'll be like, um that would be like, well, cause people are like, well, he hasn't he hasn't showed up remorse. And people are like, well, how do you know? It's like, well, he hasn't done anything to imply that he has. And
2: that's the standard, I think. What does he expect people to have? Yeah. I mean, like— I was uh, a little surprised—no, I was a lot surprised that if all the—anyone who'd been accused of misdeeds, and he basically had done them and admitted yeah. to it. Yeah. That he's his, not, That he's his, not the alleged his, one. He, that yeah. his style of comedy and the sp- thing he did specifically where he's supposedly opening himself yeah. up and being very self-critical, like, well, that's the guy who's going to figure out how to do this uh, more than anyone would. Yeah.
3: It's hard to know. Like maybe he's working on something and he'll reveal yeah. that part of it. I mean, like Aziz, when he did a comeback and yeah. Aziz came back, he did a very popular special, worked on an apology, but didn't do it until like a few months in. The thing that is concerning with Louis is he seemingly is appealing to the fans he has left, the people that it's, that have supported him from the day one after he admitted it, who are like come back ready. And those people
2: have a very different expectation of what he should do. It also seems like he's also playing to a crowd that is coming to him because a little bit. he
3: has been... Like that That he's the victim and they like that, that they agree with that stance. Right. And I don't know if that is the stance he's going to maintain. It feels incredibly cynical, but I guess I understand like you have kids and you want to make sure that you still have a career. So like whatever fans you have, you appeal to them. But I know of him as smart enough to know what he's doing. And as a person who... I was, I, I I say this with honesty, he was never like my favorite comedian. I always thought he was good and he's clearly incredibly influential. I know how talented he is. So if he is doing this material, he's deliberately doing it. And if so, it is- it's you, think de- you think there's a long con? Well, it's, or it's a short con of just like, this is my fan, they want me to, you know, there's an ad that I believe he created, maybe not, that's like something like the woke police has manufactured something, blah, blah, blah. That is not necessarily who Louis was yeah. or who Louis decided to pretend to be when he was, like, being critically acclaimed. He's like, oh, maybe this is my – it's hard. It, it 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 calls into question sort of all of it. I am not one to – I you know, I don't like judging comedians too much before they have the thing that they're presenting. You know, comedy is a form that evolves all the time and you say not the best thing, hoping – not sure how audience will respond and you – Based on the response, you're like, oh, I can go down that avenue or not. But everything we have seen, you can, ju- if you're judging just based on everything you've seen, it's like a little bit like it feels a bit cynical to me. However, you know,
2: he's still working. If you are still listening to this podcast, and God bless you uh, if you are, I would imagine you have a lot of specific views about comedy because we've been deep nerding mm-hmm. for the last hour. That said, um, and we'll end here. Give me one or two comedians you think are underappreciated and that a, a decent-sized audience would like to discover. So I did mention her. My
3: favorite comedian is Christian Schall. She's my favorite comedian. And I say underappreciated. Like, she's famous. She's on TV shows. She was on The Daily Show. She's she a lot of voices. She's, got she's a left-handed voice. Yep. But, but because she has not done stand-up as much since she got the her certain breaks— and her the one special he had if she was on Comedy Central. I think people don't necessarily know she exists, and I think she's a remarkable comedian. I think she is um, in the vein of Steve Martin and Andy Kaufman and Gilda Radner, but like a modern-day version of absurdism and silliness, but grounded. I think she's my favorite thing, and I think people don't necessarily know that about her. There's um, comedian Kyle Kinane, who's the person I probably have laughed hardest at, who you're just seeing people... No more. He did a Netflix half hour that was really, really, really good that had one of the most interesting openers um, I've ever seen, which was he starts a special, goes, I don't have much time. Let's talk about it, mass shootings. And then there's a reaction. He goes, don't worry. I'm not talking about the one that just happened. I'm talking about the one that probably just happened whenever this airs. And that is like an understanding of the time in a way that I think is next level. And then the – if I were to say anyone to watch one special – Uh, that defined the last 10 years that maybe they might not know because it wasn't necessarily on Netflix. It was Gerard Carmichael the special called Eight Mm -hmm. that I think is the greatest— HBO special. HBO special I think is the greatest stand-up special of my generation thus far. Um, It is a remarkable thing for so many levels. It's beautiful. It was shot by Bo Burnham. It, one, captured a moment. It was right after the election, and it was about uncertainty. It is formally revolutionary in terms of that style— Like, how he plays with the audience is really interesting. How they shot it was different, how stand-up specials were usually shot. He did a bad job. There were reports coming out of it that he bombed. He would repeat jokes. There were lots of silences. And they edited it down to create the tension they wanted. They used him seemingly not doing well for the audience to create a visual experience. And because of Netflix, because HBO is doing more specials because they're going to need to populate HBO now or HBO Max or whatever— Stand-up is also becoming a more visual medium and becoming a thing. And this was the first approach that I felt really was like captured how you can treat stand-up as a visual medium, as a, as a film thing, and create something new. And those it's a, it's a thing that will make you be like, oh, comedy is operating at another level. Let's take it seriously because this artist
2: is. That's great. I think I saw it and I didn't remember being wowed by it. But I'm going to rewatch it. You
3: have this sort of maybe it's like my frame of reference yeah. for it, but like comedians
2: were like, this is okay. different. My My plug is for Leslie Jones. Sure. Uh, who I'd seen on SNL for uh, forever um, and thought she was funny but didn't think much of it. And she's got this special, it's on Netflix, and it's a straightforward comedy special. She, the physical stuff she does yeah. is amazing she is something see as you live she's can, crazily she's, you can just yeah. tell the, the energy she's putting out and getting back from the audience and for whatever reason it's directed by the Game of Thrones guys
3: yeah I can't remember who she asked she, two famous people passed she asked like maybe like Steven Spielberg or like J- Scorsese and, and Spielberg J.J. JJ Abrams yeah. I think was number one but anyways because she was a fan of those shows yeah. it was really funny she, um, she's an incredible so you can watch that now I watched it on my phone on a plane and laughed out loud oh one more Watch If you haven't watched Maria Bamford, watch her. I think she's, um, in my opinion, maybe the greatest comedian alive for what my value system of what a comedian is.
2: Okay. Um, oh, wait. Since you're taping now, um, who, anyone we can look forward to? on the When own? will this come out? Oh, two weeks in late February.
3: So this will be after the premiere. Yeah. Right. Uh, so the I believe the first two episodes will be two people named Michelle. So it will be Michelle Buteau and Michelle Wolf. Ronnie Chang of The Daily Show— David Wayne, who directed The State. I do an episode with Moshe Kasher. So, Moshe Kasher has been on the show before. But this is an episode where we just talk about crowd work,
2: which is something we hadn't talked about before. Um, That's going out. If you're listening, if you're still listening, you know what crowd work is.
3: Yeah. Yeah. But it's – I, you know, the show is moving to weekly from seasonal, so it's like, it'll just keep on going. So every comedian you see, I hopefully we'll have on sooner or later. Awesome, and you're going to bring them all here in the building? Yeah, they'll all be here. Okay, I'll be hanging out. Sitting in your seat. Like the fanboy
2: I am. You're, you're seated where the guests sit. Thank you, Jesse David Fox. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Jelani. Thanks to you, the audience, the remaining audience, for listening. We love you. We'll see you next week.